come on in and have a seat. We'll get going. I know guys are still filtering in here, but it's 6.30 and we got ground to cover, so we'll go ahead and uh, get started here today, okay? Let me, uh, let me open us in a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll jump off into a couple of things that uh, I'd like to cover with you here today, all right? Father, we do thank you for today. We're grateful for your word. We're grateful for the guidance that it gives us to our life. We're thankful for the way that it reveals Christ to us. Lord, thank you for your many blessings to us. You have truly given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And uh, as we comprehend those things, um, our gratitude grows even more. And so this morning, I pray that uh, we would learn and grow from your truth, and that we would seek to serve you, to please you, and to lead in a way that honors you as we go forth from here today. So thank you for this time and for these men. I pray that our hearts would be encouraged and our minds would be strengthened according to your truth. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, come on in, guys. Um, yeah, so I, I hope you guys were able to find that, that paper um, on, uh, on Church Center. I went, out to, I, I went to send that out through Church Center to all of you guys to make it easy, but I could not figure out a way to attach the PDF through Church Center. It would only allow me to attach it as a JPEG, which I wasn't going to go through and save every page as a picture. Uh, so I could not email it to you. Um, but if you, for some reason, were not able to access that paper, just send me an email directly, um, and I will reply and get that to you. But was everybody, for the most part, able to get access to, to the paper? Okay, good, good. Well, what I want to do this morning is just start out with whatever questions you have um, about the material we covered last week, material in that paper. I really want to make sure that this concept of the image of God and what that image is, is clear for you, uh, because that is the foundation for the study of anthropology moving forward. You really cannot make it too much further into the theology of who man is and what he was intended to do if you do not comprehend the concept of the image of God having been created within man. So let's make sure we got that clear. Any questions at all about that concept as we get going here? Yeah, Court. Just taking a brief definition of image. Okay. Please. Brief definition of image. Um, man's unique ability to reflect the communicable attributes of God. Okay, and every word there is important, which a good definition, every word should be important, right? Man's unique ability. Nobody else has this ability. The animals don't. So it's man's unique ability. You've been granted the capacity to reflect or image God's nature in his communicable attributes, not his incommunicable attributes. From theology proper, can somebody remind me what a communicable versus incommunicable attribute is? Anybody know? Yeah. Okay. Okay. And an incommunicable attribute is something that is true of God that is not shared with us, such as infinitude, omniscience, omnipotence. Okay, those are incommunicable attributes, things that God does not share with us. I am not omnipotent, just... Ask those who observe me working out in the gym, okay? Uh, but I do have the capacity to demonstrate love. That is a communicable attribute, okay? So it's man's unique ability to reflect God's communicable attributes. Uh, it's a mouthful, but we clear? Okay, good question. Yeah? If I understand it right. If you understand it right. I a believer, well, let's start with an unbeliever. Okay. Correct. Yes. Uh, well, no. Um, so a, an, unbe an unbeliever has the capacity to reflect the image of God, but does not consistently do that. Okay. So I, you know, I would say that um, 9-11 happens, right? And you see all these firefighters, these men rushing into a burning building to save people. What is that? It's a manifestation of selfless sacrifice on behalf of others. It's, it's genuine, true love that at some level is a reflection of God's nature, right? Because that's been hardwired into us. That's nobility. Um, that is a reflection of the nature of God to some degree, 
but given the rest of their life, you look at the whole of it, and, and what are all the other decisions going to be reflecting there? The image of, of, of man's flesh, because unless they know Christ in and of themselves, they're slaves to their sin. Okay. Well, the, the difference between an unbeliever and a believer is that the believer has been empowered through the presence of the Holy Spirit to begin being conformed into the image of Christ and be consistently making the right decision because they have the power versus consistently making the wrong decision, being a slave to sin. Okay, so that doesn't mean that unbelievers can never do the right thing. No, unbelievers can choose to do the right thing, but the pattern and the habit of their life is going to be enslavement to sin rather than the pursuit of righteousness. Okay, good, good clarification. Yeah, Marv. Yeah, so um, silver bullet argument there is Genesis 9, post-fall, very clearly, God reaffirms the image. Right, so that, that, that would be kind of a proof text, if you will, to say, no, that's not right. Um, from a theological standpoint, I think, you know, if you go back to the definition that we were uniquely created with the intention of reflecting God's character... Um, well, that's the whole point of the redemptive story, is that we would be renewed in the character and according to the knowledge of God. That's why Jesus is so important. Um, so we have not lost it. Our capacity to use it has been inherently damaged, but it's not gone. Okay? Good questions. Yeah, Tony. Right. Yeah. Correct. So important. Okay, so there is a distinction, a clear, critical distinction between the substance of the image and the tools granted to you for using the image. And we'll get into that here a little bit more in a, in, in a few minutes. But, um, um, you know, a lot of people will try to say that man's verbal processing power or his ability to think in, in a higher critically thinking way or his ability to walk on two feet or the fact that he can display emotions um, or even the fact that he's been given a facial structure that can actually display emotion with saying nothing, that all of those things are, are elements of the image of God. Um, in fact, that would be a slight disagreement that I might have with uh, the author of our book, Owen Strayan, um, where he would kind of combine substance of image with tools of image and say it's all image. But it's actually, I think, very important that you separate those things out and say, no, substance of image is the reflection of God's nature, your capacity to reflect his nature. The tools by which you have been hardwired for the doing of that are all these unique abilities that God has given to man in creation. Okay, but you can't say that my ability to reflect emotion is part of the image of God because God doesn't have emotions. We've learned this. What does God have? Anybody remember? Now we're getting really technical. Well, his attributes are his perfections, but his... The closest thing that he has to emotions are what are called affections, okay? Affections, not emotions. So emotion indicates a swing. I'm, I'm this way one minute, I'm that way another, but God is immutable, he doesn't change. And so he can't have emotions. What he has is affections, things that are always true of him, right? Um, but he doesn't have emotion. So you can't say me being made an emotional creature with the capacity to, to, to have emotion is the way by which I image God. No, it's not, because your emotions aren't the same as God's. They're nothing like God's. So that's not the image. Your ability to have emotion is a tool whereby the image is intended to be displayed. See the difference? 
Okay, I think that's a very important distinction. All right, yeah, Bob. Right. Yep. Okay. Yeah, um, I, I would I would say I so I, I would I would I would not affirm that God has emotions, and so I think it my my per, my personhood, which is defined as my mind, will, and emotions, um, is reflective of God's nature, but the way by which my personhood is expressed is different than the way by which God's personhood is expressed because He is spirit and I am body and spirit. Okay, good. So, so love, so love is not an emotion. No, correct. Love would not be an emotion. Okay, love impacts our emotions. The way we think and the choices we make impacts the way we feel. But fundamentally, love is not a feeling. Love is a choice that is based upon knowledge. Okay, yeah, Rogi. Um... Uh, yeah, yeah, again, um, wrath, anger is first and foremost not a feeling. Um, it is a choice that is to be motivated and rooted in knowledge, right? Um, so my, my anger um, to be angry and sin not is to reflect truth about who I know God is, right? And so when I'm offended, and righteous anger, that's anger that is rooted in the truth. Um, not just anger that is rooted in, you made me feel this way. No, it's, it's, I know this to be true, I know that to be wrong, and so because of my knowledge, there is now indignation over here in my feelings. But it has to go that way, not the other way around, okay? We're getting kind of down into the weeds of, of emotion here, and I don't want to get down that rabbit trail, okay? I want to stick with the image of God specifically. So. Any questions about the image specifically? Okay, yeah. Right. Right. Yes, exactly. Which is the beauty of the whole story. If you understand what we're talking about here, guys, all of a sudden the entire storyline of the Bible, boom, clicks into focus. Because what is sanctification? It is your progress towards the ultimate state of glorification. What is glorification at the end? But a return to the beginning, who you were made to be. Right? You were made in the image, the perfect reflection of God's nature. And yet the fall completely turned that on its head. Now, though, in Christ, who is the perfect image, you are being restored into that image, and the day will come when you are glorified, and that image will once more be fully enforced in your life. So glorification really is a restoration to who you were in, uh, originally created and, and intended to be. And now end-to-end, -end, the story of Scripture makes a lot of sense. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Image of God is corrupted. Yep. Yep. It's a good word. I like that word. That's really, that's a helpful way to think about it. It's not been destroyed, it's been corrupted, and it needs to be restored, which is what Christ does, and now what is happening through sanctification as we're conformed to his image. Yeah, Mike. And now we're back to pneumatology. <laughs> the Holy Spirit was with Adam and Eve, and now they, lo they lost him. I, I, I don't know that I could think of any specific biblical reference that would say that, and I would have a hard time inferring that 
theologically. Um, I'd have to think a little bit more about that. But I, I can't think of a reference that, I, I've not heard that, nor can I think of a reference that would say, here's why I believe that. Yeah, Gerald. Yeah, he breathed into them the breath of life. Um, yeah. Yeah, that, yeah. That, that's a physical life that demonstrates that God is the source of life. Um, that would mean, I'm thinking, maybe they didn't heed the Holy Spirit per se, yeah. because there was no corruption. Right. And they were perfect in outcome. Yeah. And then following that, we need something to help us. Yeah. One. Yeah, you know, here, here is a, that's really good. Um, we need somebody to help us. Here's a really clear reason why I would say they did not. It's how quickly Eve just falls to the very first temptation she ever comes across, right? If the Holy Spirit was there, I don't know that it would have been just, you know, temptation, boom, you're done. Uh, I think that there would have been some evidence of struggle and um, manifestation of the Spirit. Right, yeah. So I think that's <laughs> that's the best I can do on the fly, Okay. I'm sorry. All right, good. Any other pressing questions? We'll do two more. Uh, Chris back there and Kurt right here. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's permanent and it is secured by the blood of Christ. So it's not exactly the same thing, but your 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 nature in that day will be the same. Correct. Yes. Right. Right. The the state is greater because you are united permanently with God with no potential for sin moving forward. Yes, but but the fundamental nature of you being there to reflect, display, proclaim his glory same. Okay? Yeah. Great. First John three two. And at that point, the reflection. Right. Glorification happens when you see Jesus, which means if you want to make progress in your sanctification, what should you be doing? <laughs> Looking at Jesus, which is kind of what we've been talking about on Sunday mornings in John seventeen. Right. Jesus is the one who makes the glory of God visible. Okay. And so you look to Him if you want progress in your sanctification. Because when you look at him, you see the glory of God and your love for God grows and now you have desire to obey his commands. So that's the key to sanctification. How are you going to be glorified? It's as you see Christ in the fullness, eye to eye, face to face of his perfection. That's amazing. First John 3, 2, one of my all-time favorite verses. Okay? Good stuff. All right, guys, good. Well, let me, um, let me dive off into something here. Um, I, we're going to come back to this idea of image and some of its ramifications, but now that everybody's here and we're all locked in, we've got our brains warmed up a little bit, th there is something that I do want to address with all of you just as kind of a teaching opportunity here with us. Um, and the reason for that is because I've been peppered with questions over the past week by just a number of you for some perspective on this issue. Um, and so it's kind of gotten to the point where I've said, you know, I think it would be helpful for us to learn something as a church uh, and as men who are responsible for leadership in the church from this particular situation, okay? And if you don't know what I'm talking about, um, just open up the Christian internet and, and you'll see that it's on fire right now uh, because Alistair Begg, who is a very well-known, very well-respected, very faithful pastor and man of God, made a statement in the context of a private conversation where he was giving some counsel to a particular lady as to whether or not uh, she should go to her granddaughter's, I believe it was transgender wedding, okay? And so there was just a lot of um, kind of nuance that, that went into that conversation and Alistair gave that grandmother some particular advice. Um, which kind of flew in the face, really, of a lot of convictions that, that people have. 
And the result is that, boom, the Christian world exploded and just went nuts. How could Alistair possibly give the counsel that he give, gave, which was, in, in this case, specifically for this single grandmother, um, she, she ought to consider going to the wedding. Um, which is a, a position that, that he took. Um, there was a lot of different factors that went into the counsel that he gave. Uh, he was very clear to make sure that he said, this is not a blanket endorsement of gay marriage. This is not a blanket endorsement of you going to gay weddings in general. Um, this is a unique situation with specific advice for, for this in the context of a more private conversation, which then, boom, just went wild, right? And the response of the church has been uh, ranging the gamut from, I would say, vitriolic to disappointed and kind of everything in between. There are people who are falling on his side. There's a lot of people who are not. And it's just lit the internet on fire, okay? Um, my purpose in bringing it up here this morning is not to defend Alistair, nor is it to condemn Alistair, because I think one of the problems that we have in the Christian church today is that everybody feels entitled to have an opinion about everybody and everything else, okay? And because of the glorious advent of social media, not only can everybody have an opinion, but they also have the capacity to express and share their opinion, okay? Um, which is just really not helpful um, in, in, in general, that everybody's got a, a microphone, and the result is that there's just a cacophony of noise that results. Um, you know, so I, I think the reason why I'm wanting to address the, the issue here is just as a learning opportunity for us as men in the context of, of our church to know how do we think about these sorts of issues, specifically when it comes to issues of conviction and conscience and interacting with one another over those issues of conviction and conscience? I think there are some important lessons that we can learn as a church here uh, on that issue specifically, because guys, that is kind of a, a universal issue that we have run into in the past and it's one that we're going to run into again multiple times, especially in the context of an election year, okay? How do we think when we bump up against someone that, that has a controversial conviction um, or a conviction that perhaps we might not even agree with? Because a lot of the reaction that I'm seeing online is not consistent um, with what it really ought to be, given the biblical parameters for these kinds of situations. Okay? The situation that, that Alistair chose to spoke into is a situation that is definitively in the category of wisdom and conscience. It is not in the category of divinely revealed truth. What I mean by that is that there is no chapter and verse that clearly articulates this is what thou shalt do universally as a governing law um, in this particular situation. Which means that now it's left up to each one of us in our consciences to determine what is right and what is wrong given the parameters of the situation and the reality of the world in which I live. That's an issue of the conscience. Now, every single one of us are going to give an account to God for the choices that we make, the convictions that we hold, and the positions of conscience that we stake out. Alistair will give an account to God for the convictions that he holds and the counsel that he holds. But that is between him and God, not him and the social media mob, okay? Very important to recognize that fact, that you and I, within the context of the church, we all have the responsibility before God to read the scriptures, to interpret them, and to hold our convictions as we apply that truth to life. And that may mean that I land in a different place than you on a, given, on a particular issue. It may mean that, that I land in a different place than even Alistair does on, on this particular issue. But that does not mean that Alistair is in sin 
or that Alistair needs to repent because his conscience doesn't match up with mine. To say that is really the height of arrogance, right? To say that because my convictions are different than his and he doesn't agree with my convictions, well, that's sin in an area of conscience and wisdom. That, that's not right, okay? Very clearly in Scripture, 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 10, there are parameters given for how we are to think about issues of conscience as relates to life in the church. And the governing principles that you'll see there in 1 Corinthians as it relates to an issue of conscience, the application of revealed truth to life, is that we would prioritize our love and concern and relationships with one another. Okay? And I think that's a very important governing principle in situations like this. That we would be, in 1 Corinthians, for instance, chapter 10 talks about issues of the conscience and that we've got the freedom in Christ to make these decisions and to seek to apply our knowledge of the truth to life. But the context of that is that we would love one another. And I think that's what's important to remember because that's what I, I really don't see happening across a lot of the evangelical spectrum right now. Um, as there is a pretty strong, in many, in many ways, vitriolic response uh, to a man like Alistair and the convictions that he, in his own conscience and mind, has staked out as it relates to this issue. Um, the response is that, you know, he's a false teacher, mark and avoid him, um, he's no longer to be trusted, no longer to be listened to, all because he has a different conviction in this particular area than you do. Well, if Alistair was negotiating away um, the, the authority of the scripture, or if he was compromising the sanctity of marriage, or if he was gender bending the norms between what God has designed male and female to be, well, those are all issues of divinely revealed truth. And so we would be justified in, in having some thoughts, some strong thoughts about that and some, some direct challenges and some confrontation for him. He would need to repent of, of, of those things. But guys, that's not at all what, what he has done in this situation. He is not negating, abrogating, rebelling against any divinely revealed truth. He is simply seeking to take what he understands the scriptures to say to balance out some competing priorities that are very clearly there in the scripture as it relates to a very specific situation. And he was careful to say, this is not my universal advice for, for how to approach these kinds of situations. He was very careful to say that, that this is the counsel that I gave given the specific dynamics of this particular situation. So this is not him reversing his position, him rejecting biblical truth, or him just re, 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 uh, ignoring the, the reality of what Scripture teaches. This is simply him seeking to apply what he knows of the truth to life. And he has every right to, to, to do that. And if we don't agree with him, well, then, then we don't agree with him. But that doesn't give us the right to, to condemn him, to say that he is now in sin, to reject him as a false teacher, certainly, because that is to evidence a lack of love and charity and grace that we have been called to in the church. You guys remember this past summer, um, we went through the seven churches in, in, in Revelation. We got to the church in Ephesus. Remember that church? And uh, they had everything right. They had all their T's crossed and their I's dotted. But what was Christ's very strong condemnation of them? You don't have love for each other, which means you've lost your love for me. And I think that that's really important for us to remember when we come to engage in situations like this, um, that, that there is a high priority that Christ places in his church upon our love, charity, grace, patience, kindness towards one another. Um, that in many cases, as people engage in this conversation, especially on the internet, I just don't see. You may have your T's crossed and your I's dotted as it relates to the theology of this, and maybe your position is perhaps more biblical at a universal standpoint. But if you're not expressing that with a heart and a spirit and a condition of love, well, then 1 Corinthians 13 says, you have utterly nothing.
right? And so I think that's, that's important to remember. Um, and the reason that, that I say that um, is because not that we need to get down into the details of what Alistair has said and the rightness or the wrongness of that and, and really litigate that issue here. It's because it's a perfect example of how to think about an issue of conscience and how to respond to an issue of conscience that, that isn't raging here in our midst. Because gentlemen, I, I'm here to tell you that there are going to be times in the life of our church and our relationship together where there are going to be issues of conscience that are going to be raging in our midst. We need to know how to handle and think about those things in a way that honors God. Right? And that's what I want to draw your attention to here. Okay? I'm not trying to make a statement on whether or not what he did was right, whether or not he did what was wrong. Um, I know what my convictions are. I know what my counsel would be in a situation like that, uh, but that's not the issue. The, the, the issue here is that a man has expressed his conscience in an area of conscience, uh, and we need to give him the, the right to, to hold to his conscience and give an account to his God. We can respect him, we can um, appreciate him and the fullness of his ministry. We don't have to throw overboard 40 years of faithfulness in a man just because his conscience diverged from ours, perhaps, in this one instance, okay? I think that's just really important to think about. We love one another, and the way by which we do that, oftentimes in the context of the church, is to give each other space to exercise our consciences before God, okay? Clear enough? All right, very good. Well, I just wanted to make that comment because I think um, that's something where I've gotten, I don't know, maybe five or 10 emails from, from you guys this week saying, what, 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 what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Uh, and my, my answer is let's draw a lesson on how we ought to be interacting with one another uh, because there are, are certainly opportunities going to be granted to us as the church um, for applying that lesson in our context, okay? Fair enough? All right, good. Good stuff, guys. Well, thanks for letting me diverge there for just a few minutes. Um, I uh, appreciate that. All right. Now, let's get into what we're supposed to be talking about today, which now that our time is halfway over, we, we're going to have to push the pedal down to the floor. All right. Okay. <coughs> All right. So we've already talked about the image of God. We've already reviewed that, I think. I don't need to belabor that point here. Um, are, are there any blanks there that you guys are missing? There probably are. Okay, so the image of God is defined as man's unique ability, court, here you go, to reflect the communicable attributes of God. And you cannot confuse the substance of the image with the tools given for the display of that image. So we've already talked about this, but for instance, your ability to show grace, what is that? Is that substance or is that tool? Grace, substance, okay, good. That's part of the substance of the image. Your ability to show emotion, is that substance or is that tool? Tool, okay, your ability to demonstrate love, for instance, is that substance or tool? Pop quiz time, substance. Your ability to engage in critical thinking, is that substance or is that tool? Tool, okay. Understanding the distinction between image and tools becomes very important to properly interpreting and understanding how to fulfill your purpose as it's going to be defined in Genesis 1.28. So let's go ahead and turn there to Genesis 1.28, okay? <coughs> Excuse me. I'm still just really having a good time with this. Yeah, three, three more weeks, he says. Awesome, can't wait. All right, so... Genesis 1.26, God creates man in his image. Genesis 1.27, he says he created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Okay, male and female, that part becomes really important there because of what's about to be said here. And God blessed them, and God said to them, all right, here's your marching orders. Be fruitful and multiply. Okay, be fruitful and multiply. That's the very first part of the statement that's given to man. Is that possible if gender is not a real thing. No, obviously you must have male and female to fulfill the very first part of your purpose. All right, so our society's rejection of the biblical reality of gender, God hardwired us a certain way, 
and our ability to fulfill our purpose is tied directly to his design. You cannot reject that. You cannot ignore it. Okay, but here's what God says. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Okay, so based on Genesis 1, what is the purpose of mankind? Well, your answer might be, to dominate everything. Isn't that what it says right there? Sounds pretty manly, works for me, that must be right. But guys, to, uh, to draw <laughs> that interpretation is to end up with some pretty bad theology. Okay? Your, your, your purpose um, as a human being is not to dominate the world in the sense that, that we might think of when we hear the word dominate. All right? you know, I, I just Googled this week, which was my first mistake, um, the dominion mandate in Genesis 1.26. And what came up very first was a message on YouTube. Please don't watch this message. It was terrible. Um, I'll, just, I'll just go ahead and tell you about it, though. Because this pastor was walking all over the stage, walking all around people, and he was saying, Dominion, can I get an amen, <laughs> is the original doctrine, right? Praise the Lord. And he's just going off on how that dominion is what man was made for. And, and this is the original doctrine. And, and this, is what, this is what we ought to be focusing on. We don't need deliverance from sin. What we need is dominion. And that means that, that whatever you need, you can have. If you need the job, you can get the job. If you, if you need, if you need to, to have more, you, you, you can have more. You, you were made for more. You were made for dominion. You were made to dominate. And this is the original doctrine. And the problem with the church is that we don't preach the doctrine of dominion. We preach the, the, the doctrine of deliverance because we're focused on the problems, not on the solution. And the solution is domination. Okay, I, I'm like, what, what are you even talking about right now? Okay, you just ripped it right out of context. Hermeneutics 101, what did we learn? Context is king. Okay, and if you interpret this statement of man's purpose here in light of the context of verses 26 and 27, you come to a very different conclusion than um, our heretic friend on the internet <laughs> came to. Okay? So <coughs> what is the conclusion that we are left to draw? Well, let's go back to the nature of the image. We've already defined that. What is your purpose being made in the image of God? To reflect His glory. You were made to demonstrate the glory of God and reflect His nature before creation. Let me just establish that beyond a shadow of a doubt here for you this morning because it not only impacts this conversation, it also has a very substantive impact on the conversation we're having in John 17. So somebody read for me Isaiah 43, 7 and somebody else Psalm 8, 5 through 9. Who can do Psalm 43, 7? Okay, Kurt? Isaiah 43, 7? Perfect. Okay. Everybody who was made for what? His glory. He formed us for the purpose of bringing Him glory. It just says that outright there in Isaiah 43.7. That's your purpose. Okay? Clear as a bell. Psalm 8, 5 through 9. Who can, who can do that? Dan? Very good. Now, if you guys see there in your Bibles, there's a transition from verse 8 to 9. 
In verses 5 through 8, he is recapping the dominion mandate. He basically restates the truth of Genesis 1 in poetic fashion. That, that you were created a little lower than the angels. You were given great nobility and power to exercise dominion over everything. And then in verse 9, Dan, can you read verse 9 again? He pivots over and he says, So now, here's the conclusion of what mankind does with all of that strength and power and right of privilege that he's been given. What does verse 9 say? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name, not ours, in all the earth. You might expect that he would conclude with, O Lord, our Lord, um, how awesome you are for giving us such a majestic name in all the earth. But that is not what he says. He says the whole point of me being given as a man a privilege of priority in the universe is that God's majesty and glory might be made known. Do you, do you see the pivot that he makes there? The whole point of me exercising my dominion over creation is so that the glory of God and his majesty might be put on display. Reflected, Reflected through us, from us. Okay, that, that is the point. So your purpose is not the domination of the earth, but imaging the nature of God to the rest of creation. That's really what we're learning here in this statement of that's known as the dominion mandate. All right? And understanding that the glory of God is the point has a huge impact on how you interpret the mission now. Okay? Dominion is the resulting responsibility of us having the image. It's not the substance of the image. Some people will say, that the nature of God's image is that we now have the capacity to exercise lordship over the earth and dominion over the earth. And, and that's what it means to be made in the image of God. And I say, no, no. Your responsibility to exercise dominion over the earth is a reflection of who you are made in the image of God. Okay, so, so now let's talk a little bit about what it actually means to exercise dominion, to subdue the earth, how do we give glory to God as we engage in this responsibility, okay? The responsibility of mankind to fulfill this mandate has to be viewed in light of that purpose. So let's talk a little bit about just the, the function of this mandate specifically, okay? Um, Genesis 9-2, we could go there, but let me just recap it here for you. Um, I'm giving you that reference just to demonstrate the fact, again, that the dominion mandate, like the image, is still in force even after the fall. Okay, so the fall happens and fundamentally changes our perspective on our purpose, but that doesn't mean that the mandate to exercise care of the earth and reflect the glory of God to it has been removed because this mandate is restated in Genesis chapter 9 after the flood. With one small adjustment, and it's one that I'm really grateful for, uh, God tells Noah and all of his sons, you now can eat meat. Praise God for that, right? Um, just <laughs> what I would have added in Genesis 9 is maybe you guys could wait for one reproductive cycle at least. Otherwise, every time you eat a good steak, you're going to be knocking off a species into extinction. <laughs> Coming after Noah and the ark there. Um, but they, they got that, obviously. And, that, and that's part of it, that we be stewards uh, of, of God's creation. So, so Noah didn't hear the, the mandate there and immediately go out and just slaughter entire species of animals because he was hungry. No, <laughs> he, was, he was respectful of the creation. But the point is, God God says, now post-fall, in addition to eating plants, now you can eat meat too, okay? But my point here in saying all of this is that the dominion mandate is restated after the fall of mankind, which means it's still a real thing and a, and a real responsibility for us. It's not as though God gave us a mandate, we sinned and oop, messed that up, I guess that responsibility is just off our plates now. No, God restates it post-fall, so we're still responsible for it. Okay, is that clear? So, <coughs> in light of the fact that we're still responsible, what are the parts of this responsibility for mankind? Well, there's really three primary parts here that are given to us. I'll just give them to you here. It's procreation, subjection, and dominion. So let's talk a little bit about what these things are because each of these things are means 
by which we are responsible to glorify God as we interact with and engage with his world. Okay? Procreation, the reason why that's important, that mankind would be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, is because it's through procreation that the image of God is not only replicated in man, but extended through man to the ends of the earth. God wants the entirety of the planet, the entirety of the universe, to know his glory. And that means that there's got to be more than just Adam and Eve. And so he gives them a mandate to go and reproduce and fill the earth with carbon copies of God's image. Right? That's part of how God is glorified is as humanity reproduces. And what are they reproducing every time a new baby is born? another image bearer. And so as that image bearer is either brought to salvation or brought to a place of rejection and ultimately acknowledgement of God, they will be, no matter what, ultimately giving glory to God in creation. And so every single time a human life enters into this world, it has inherent worth and dignity because it is an image bearer and God will, one way or another, be brought glory through that life, okay? So procreation, reproduction is inherently part of the way by which mankind is able to glorify God and bear his image, right? That's the first part of this mandate, okay? Second part is to subject the earth. It says there in verse 28, uh, subdue it, okay? What does that word to subdue mean? It means to master something, to have mastery over something. That's not sh through to be, it's not meant to be through sheer brute force. It's as you know something. It's as you come to understand something. It's as you interact with something. It's to learn the secrets of, of something and, and use the knowledge gained productively, okay? Um, Henry Morris, who is a Christian scientist, did a lot of really good work, especially back in the 1970s, kind of giving the foundation for Christian science. He's a scientist who is a Christian. <laughs> Excuse me, Marv. I appreciate the clarification. <laughs> he, is a, he is a Christian who is a scientist. No, he's a scientist who is a Christian, okay? But, but he did some really good work um, kind of fusing theology with science and showing how that science is the natural fruit of theology, and, and he ties it all, really, right back to this text. Here's what he has to say. In order to subdue the earth, we must first understand its processes. Thus, research is the foundational occupation for fulfilling the divine mandate. Then this knowledge must be applied in technology, engineering, medicine, agriculture, etc. It must be implemented for use by all, that's business and commerce, Transmitted to future generations, that's education. The creation can also be described and praised in the humanities and in the fine arts. The dominion mandate thus authorizes all honorable human occupations as a stewardship under God. Okay, that's what it means to subdue the earth. It means that we are put in charge of it as stewards over it so that we might understand it and use that which we now understand to glorify God. So can I glorify God in business and commerce? Yes. Can I glorify God in scientific pursuit? Yes. Can I glorify God by enjoying fine arts and humanities? Yes. Because all truth fundamentally belongs to who? God. And he has hardwired that truth into the regular order of this universe. And so as I explore that order and use that order and the resources that he has placed upon this earth in abundance, I am able to bring glory to his name in all the pursuits of my life, whether or not they are scientific, business, or recreational. All of it fits under the category of his divine order that I am now responsible to know and to utilize unto the glory of his name. That's part of what it means to subdue the earth. 
But there's one more piece here, and it's this idea of dominion. Okay? The word dominion there, it means to exercise governance over the earth. Just as God is the Lord of me, now because I'm made in His image, there is a certain element in which you could say, you were made to exercise a kind of lordship over creation, a certain governance over creation. That's what dominion means. It means that God has placed upon this earth all sorts of different natural resources, given you access to all sorts of different truth. And now we are responsible to take that truth and use those resources as we steward them and govern them in a way that brings glory to His name. In Hebrew, the word dominion is a word that is fundamentally a peaceful word. It can be used in a military sense, right? That I'm going to really just lord this over you and exercise dominion. But more often than not, this word in the Hebrew language is used in a peaceful sense to indicate a, a careful care and responsibility, cultivation, again, unto the glory of God. And, and so what, what you see here is both science and technology, research and development. Okay? So I'm, I'm subjecting things as I'm learning. I'm exercising dominion as I apply that learning through technology to master. Okay, I'm researching, that's part of subduing, and I'm developing, that's part of dominion. Okay? The mandate was given so that we guys might engage our world in every way, in, in a way that reflects ultimately the glory of God. And the world was given to mankind as a stewardship for our ultimate purpose, which is the glorification of God. But then sin enters into the picture. And what does sin do to us and to our exercise of this dominion? Well, it, I like Bruce's word, Kurt, you just repeated it. It corrupts, corrupts everything. So now instead of using all the resources, the natural resources that, that God has given to me um, for the purpose of reflecting his glory, instead of looking at creation and seeing opportunities everywhere to bring glory to him, no, now not only am I corrupted, but my engagement with the world is corrupted. My engagement with God's earth is also corrupted. And so instead of stewarding that which was subjected to us to use it to bring God glory, we begin to exploit it for our own pleasures and purposes. You say, now all of a sudden you're starting to sound like an environmentalist. Okay, hang on. Okay, let me, let me, let me explain this. Because if you fail to properly interpret this text right here, that God has given you the earth as a stewardship to use to bring glory to his name, if you don't properly interpret this, you're going to end up going into one of two errors. Either you will become a full-blown environmentalist. I've got to protect the earth at all costs, right? That, that's one error, that, that I am here, right, <laughs> to sustain the earth. No, the earth is here to sustain you in your mission of glorifying God, not the other way around. But if you, if you misconstrue this, misunderstand this, all of a sudden you think that the mission of mankind is, is, to, is to sustain creation, not creation being here for the purpose of sustaining you. Right? That, that would be a mistake. But, but a similar mistake would, become, would be to become what we could call a predatory capitalist, right? where I can use and abuse the earth because it was made for me, crying out loud, right? So I can, I can just go and, and dump oil into the ocean willy-nilly because, well, I can. There's oil to be had and there's an ocean to dump it in, and so why not? I can just strip mine the life right out of everything and destroy everything in the state of whatever, right? Um, that would also be a similar mistake. That's not stewarding. That's, that's not exercising dominion. That's destroying the creation, okay? We, we were given creation to utilize to bring glory to God. But that doesn't mean we have the right to take advantage of it and to just destroy it and, and ruin everything around us. Okay? So there's a, very fine, there's a very fine balance here. And you need to understand this. We ought to use the resources that God has given to us. 
But, but in our minds, every resource that we use is aimed at one particular purpose, and that is to bring glory to God. And so guys, every time that you or I, we pick up a piece of technology or we use any kind of energy, we are responsible, or we eat any food, or, or we use anything else that comes from creation. We can either use that in a way that is sinful and unto our own glory, right? We're stewarding it to make much of ourselves, or we can use it in a way that seeks to bring glory to God. So when I pick up my iPhone, okay, this is the product of all sorts of technology that comes directly from creation. This is a direct reflection of man's capacity to subdue the earth, that means understand it, and apply that understanding by creating a very powerful piece of technology. I can use this to do one of two things. I can either use it and steward the fruit of man's dominion to bring glory to God. I can use it for all kinds of good purposes. I can call somebody in the hospital. I can look up a Bible verse. I can send an email that's encouraging. Or I could get on the internet and look at all sorts of things that nobody should be looking at, right? You can use this one piece of technology to, to do very, two very different things, right? One of them fulfills the dominion mandate to use that which is God has entrusted to me. The other abuses the dominion mandate because it's bringing glory to myself and fulfilling my own sinful desires. You see what I'm saying? Okay, so very important that we understand this, um, th this principle. What, what I'm trying to say is God has entrusted the earth to us so that we might steward its abundant resources in order to make the fame of his name known. That's the reason why you're here, Psalm 8, to make the majesty and glory of God readily apparent to everybody else. You are responsible to leverage and use everything in your life and everything in your environment in the pursuit of that grand purpose. Okay, that, that's what we're trying to say here now. Okay? Mm-hmm. Yep, respect and understand the order that God has put in place and then utilize it to bring Him glory specifically. All right, good. Well, I could talk about some um, implications, but honestly, we're going to cover all those implications in future weeks in very great detail. So we have two minutes left. Any questions at all about what we've been talking about here? Okay, maybe one or two questions. Anybody have anything? Yeah, Gerald. Yeah. <coughs> right. Right. A shepherd exercises authority to direct the sheep. Okay. In a very similar way, you've been granted a position of authority in creation, and you're responsible to use the strength of, of your might, your capacities, and your place to bring glory to God, but never to yourself. Okay? One more? Yeah, Bruce. Sure. Extinction. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the, as this relates to the issue of environmentalism versus capitalism here, let, let me just be very clear. God has put all sorts of resources in this world for his good purposes, right? And, and, and for our good to, to, be, to be used and to be useful. God is the one who put the oil in the ground. Is it wrong for us to drill that oil out and use it? Well, it, it depends. What are you going to use it for? You're going to use that energy for his purposes? Well, then you're, you're using it correctly. If you're not going to use it for his purposes, then you're not using it correctly. But it's not wrong to drill for oil. Okay? What would be wrong is to drill for all that oil and just flood the state of Wyoming with it, right? Because you're just destroying creation and not putting it to any good use. 
Um, and so there, there, there's this balance that exists there, okay? We, we use the resources. God's put them there for that reason, unto his glory. But that doesn't mean we have the right to abuse them because our position is that of a steward, okay? Respect, it's a good word. All right, good stuff, guys. We will, uh, well, actually, next week I'll be out, but Bruce will be here uh, talking about the depravity of man. So be looking forward to that, all right? <laughs> He's an expert. <laughs> good. 